0: You're listening to an Encore edition of Studio Tulsa recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Back in 1994, a group of 16 female professors at MIT signed a letter alleging ongoing discrimination at that institution over underpayment, lack of advancement opportunities, denial of credit for their work in their respective fields and their university, as well as the lack of equal resources for research and teaching. Led by molecular biologist and cancer researcher Nancy Hopkins, these scientists had made major advancements in their respective fields, psychology, oceanography, neuroscience, physics, geophysics, cell biology, genetics, and immunology. 68% of these women were elected members of the National Academy of Science, and a quarter had received the National Science Medal. These were very prestigious scientists, but each thought that the discrimination they experienced was the exception not the rule. Only by getting together, they realized the discrimination was institutional. When MIT finally admitted to the discrimination five years later, my guest then at the Boston Globe broke the story. Now, 24 years later, she returns to this subject to tell the full story of Nancy Hopkins and the pervasive sexism in science at that time. While much has changed today, in small part due to these women, unconscious bias or even occasionally outright bias is still an issue in high-level science. Kate Zernicki is now a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter with the New York Times, and her book is titled The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT and the Fight for Women in Science. It's published by Scribner's. Kate Zernicki, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your book, The Exceptions, is based in part on some 1999 reportage you did while at the Boston Globe, which told the story of how MIT admitted they'd been discriminating against their female faculty members. What interests you in revisiting this story and and telling the full story of these women that stood up to their administration?
1: Well, you know, I always say as a reporter that I have no favorite stories. It's like having a favorite child. Um, But I will say that this story really stuck with me all these years, the story that I did in 1999 And I think the reason that it did is that these women, you know, I was just starting my career when I did this story, and these women talked about a different kind of discrimination than I had ever thought about at the time. I think, you know, my mother graduated from college in 1954 and wanted to go to law school, was told she would never get a job as a lawyer. So by the time I was working in my or doing my own career, I sort of thought, well, the doors are open now for women. That's the hurdle. And what these women were talking about was, what these women, you know, enlightened me about was that, in fact, what really matters is how you treat people and how you view them once they get in the door. And what these women talked about, they described as 21st century discrimination, which wasn't sort of the overt, you can't have that job. It was more that there was a small accumulation of slights over the years. So, you know, it's a certain amount of grant money not received there or lab space not gotten here, or maybe your salary's a little less, you're not included in this project. And gradually over time, it builds up. You know, when it's happening to you, you think, okay, you know, I'm not going to complain about this because it's so small, but over time it really does build up. So I was in 2018, January 2018, I was watching the Me Too movement unfold and thinking, okay, that's obviously very important. But what Me Too was talking about was really egregious sexual assault or sexual uh, harassment, And I thought that what these women had talked about was really, in many ways, more stubborn and more pervasive for particularly for professional women, women in the workplace. And so I wanted to tell the story about what it looks like and, and what unconscious bias feels like. I think, you know, 1999, when I first did this story, nobody was really talking about unconscious bias. Now we're talking about it so much that I think people have lost any sense of what it actually means. And they sort of think, oh, yeah, I learned about that in workplace training. (laughs) But I think this book describes really what it feels like.
0: I feel like anybody who reads this book, it doesn't matter if you're in the sciences or in academia at all. If you're a professional woman, you're going to recognize the things that happened to these women.
1: I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, so many of the parts of the story resonated with me. And even my early readers, they sort of, you know, they read it and no matter what field they were in, they sort of felt Nancy's anger all over because I think they felt a certain amount of anger in their own careers about what's happening to them.
0: And of course, the title, The Exceptions, came really from the women themselves. They, They thought as they were going through their academic career that they were the exception, and for whatever reason, because of their particular circumstances, these slights, uh, these uh, lack of support deferring to men in academia as opposed to women was a specific case in their case. And not a general case.
1: Yeah. I mean, the exceptions really, I had no idea what I was going to title this book when I started, <laughs> um, even though I've been thinking about the story for so long, oddly. But um, First, I kept hearing women, female scientists described as exceptional. Oh, well, she was exceptional. She was exceptional. And it's like, well, wait, how many many exceptions are there? Um, But then, yes, it really was the way the women talked about what happened to them, which was to say, you know, they'd be describing something and they would say, but I, you know, I thought it was the exception. I thought it was just because this guy was a jerk or, you know, this was the situation and there was sort of this weird rivalry. And in many cases, what they thought was that it was their own fault. I think they were very reluctant, all of them were very reluctant to sort of, I think, play what they would they would have thought of as the gender card. You know, these were not reflexive feminists and certainly not, they weren't in this for the activism. They really just wanted to do their science. And it only was at the point, particularly for Nancy Hopkins, when she found she that the, these slights were getting in the way of doing her science, that she said, I've got to speak up about this.
0: And the book does focus on Nancy Hopkins, uh, who was sort of the leader of this group of 16 female scientists uh, and academics at MIT that signed the letter. And uh, in her case, what this book is about is sort of her eyes slowly opening to what was happening in her particular case. She's a molecular biologist. Uh, She comes to Harvard at a a really heady time. Uh, She uh, sort of attaches uh, herself to James Watson, uh, who had just won the Nobel Prize for uh, his role in discovering DNA, and we follow her entire career. Tell me a little bit about Nancy Hopkins and, and and her story.
1: Yeah, so this is actually one of the things that I didn't know about when I was doing the story in 1999, and that there's just once I started looking into it for the book, there's just so much richness in her story. Nancy Hopkins was 19 years old. She's a student at Radcliffe, which is the girls' kind of wing of Harvard. And but they you know the Radcliffe women young women take classes with the Harvard young men, and she goes to this one hour biology lecture taught by James Watson, and it's as you say it's four months after he and Francis Crick have shared the Nobel Prize. She has no idea what she wants to do with her life. Um, Her father has died the year before. She's you know obviously sort of struggling to kind of establish herself on her own two feet, and. Like a lot of women in 1964 who wanted to have to combine a family and and a career or a professional life, she thought that she had a only limited amount of time to do this. So she's 19 years old when we meet her, and she has a year until graduation. And so she thinks, and she has this boyfriend who she met the first week of freshman year. And so she's pretty sure she's going to marry the boyfriend. Um, but she doesn't want to just sort of slide into the house in the suburbs, the dog, the 2.5 kids. And so she thinks, okay, I have until age 30, uh, when I have to have children to do my big, you know, to, to somehow contribute to the world. And she really thinks I want to relieve human suffering in some way. You know, she's not, she's not one to set small goals. Um, <laughs> so she, she goes to this lecture and she, it just becomes kind of entranced with all that DNA could possibly do for us. You know, think about this is like the, really the beginning of the genetic revolution, Anyway, so she thinks she has one year to figure out what she's going to do with her life for the next 10 years, and then she's got 10 years to do this amazing thing, and then she's going to go off and raise her kids. She falls in love with the, with the study of DNA. She goes to Watson and says, can I work in your lab? And he's like, sure. It's not even a big deal to him. Um, there aren't many women in the lab, and around her, she certainly doesn't see any any female scientists. There aren't women on the faculty at Harvard. And she ends up going, and she ends up really enjoying her work in the lab, she contributes to a very important uh, experiment in our early understanding of gene expression. That's even, you know, she hasn't even got her PhD yet. Right. So Watson says to her, you really need to get your PhD. So she gets her PhD from Harvard. And then she ends up being one of the first women hired at MIT. In the meantime, of course, her marriage has fallen apart because she is so singularly devoted to science. And she thinks that that's the cost of being devoted to science. So she starts at MIT and again, it's a very heady time. Uh, she's interested in studying the genetics of cancer and retroviruses have just been discovered. So she's so she gets to work at the Cancer Center, just at, which is being built at MIT just at the start of Nixon's war on cancer. And when she starts there, she thinks she does run into some problems. So she's the only woman on the faculty. Uh, the UPS drivers think she's the secretary. The technicians think she's another technician. The postdocs think she's think she's another postdoc. You know, nobody kind of gets that she has equal status to the other men on the junior faculty. She ultimately does get tenure, which is a struggle for her because she has what she thinks of as a personality conflict with another man in the department. But she really still does face these small slights and she does everything to try to sort of say, like, this isn't about sex discrimination. This is my problem. This is the problem of the situation. So first she changes. She moves her lab to a different floor. Finally, she says, like, okay, maybe it's just cancer research. It's really aggressive and I'm not aggressive enough to do this. So she decides she's going to go into um, she wants to study neurobiology and it's not quite possible to do the experiment that she wants to do. But she's going to go start doing this work with zebrafish in in, um, developmental biology. And she's going to do kind of a social experiment, too, because she sees that developmental biology and particularly the study of zebrafish is led by a woman. So she thinks, okay, well, maybe if I go into this field that's led by a woman, things will be different. And of course, it's not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's interesting is throughout that period of time, she keeps Going back to this old trope, or at least as you relate it, the fact that science is ultra competitive and that what she's experiencing is not discrimination, but the competitive <clears throat> nature of science. And, and she does see the fact that male colleagues will treat each other equally bad as well. But the lights were very slowly turning on that <laughs> the discrimination was at the heart of it. And it seems like she relied on that trope an awful lot.
1: Yeah, she did. And as I said, you know, many of the my early readers read the book and felt angry kind of from their own experience, but also <laughs> kind of felt angry at Nancy, like, what is wrong with you? But I think she also thought that science was a meritocracy and really was sort of this this pure pursuit. So it was all about data and numbers. And there wasn't going to be any of this, like the social causes wouldn't filter in. I also think... You know, we we hear a lot, people will say, oh, you're playing the gender card or, oh, you're playing the race card. And she was very reluctant to do that because she thought she was good enough to compete. And so she didn't want to have it. She didn't want to sort of have this this handicap or this asterisk next to her name. But what happens over 20 years is first she reads a book about Rosalind Franklin, who was a woman who James Watson and Francis Crick relied on, they relied on a photograph that she had taken of DNA. And that was really sort of the first clue to them that in fact the structure of DNA was a double helix. That was not the final piece of their puzzle, but it was a critical piece of their puzzle. Rosalind Franklin died before the Nobel Prize was awarded and Nobel Prizes are not awarded posthumously. So she was shut out, but the feeling was that she had never been given credit. So Nancy first reads this book about Rosalind Franklin and that starts to turn the light a little (laughs) bit brighter. And then she watches how other women at MIT are treated, and she just thinks like, oh, God, you know, these women are really being treated badly. And yes, sometimes the men treat themselves badly, but it's more often the women who are being targeted in this way and who are sort of being talked about as if they're not quite bright enough. But she is really reluctant to admit that it's happening to herself. And it's only, as I said earlier, only really once things start to get in the way of doing her science that she finally objects.
0: My guest today is Kate Zernike. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter now for the New York Times. It was in 1999 Mm -hmm. when she was at the Boston Globe that she told the story of how MIT admitted in 1999 that they had long discriminated against female faculty members. And uh, it's now the complete story of Nancy Hopkins, who was, I guess, the leader of 16 female scientists and professors at MIT that... uh, spoke out against this discrimination. And now she's telling the complete story in this new book, The Exceptions. And she's our guest today on Studio Tulsa. I'm glad you mentioned Rosalind Franklin because there's an episode early in in the book that sort of made me think of the parallels. And it's Nancy had started working on a a doctoral degree at Yale and then dropped that and worked as a technician for another scientist for a year. And they made a crucial discovery about some of the composition of DNA, yet she was not giving, and she made, I guess, important contributions to this research, but she was not really acknowledged. And it sort of reminded me of Rosalind Franklin and how her role in DNA was in the publicity of Watson and Crick. There was no mention of Franklin.
1: Right. And of course, when Rosalind Franklin died, you know, the New York Times ran, I think, a five paragraph obituary on her, and it didn't even mention her work on DNA. It talked about her work with tobacco mosa- mosaic virus. Um, but yeah, so the early uh, experiment that you're talking about that Nancy does uh, is with a guy named Mark Potashny, who was really was one of the who did the first experiments on or some of the first critical experiments understanding the, the repressor function of genes. So in other words, why some genes turn on and off. And Nancy, she did. She drops out of Yale because she's so. This is at the time. This is like a really critical question for genetics going forward. And so Nancy is Nancy, like Mark Potashny, is really kind of obsessed with this question because it will answering this question of how this happens will allow you to do to sort of it will unlock all these other research questions. Um, so she drops out of Yale to come back to Harvard to work as a technician for Mark. And really, technicians were where women were welcome at the time. You didn't see them as professors; they were research associates or technicians because that was the place that they could get hired. So Nancy does this work, um, and yes, initially Mark Mark is this phenom at, at Harvard. He's a member of Harvard's Junior Fellows, which is a very prestigious society, and people are given extra money to do sort of whatever they want to just sort of to make their brilliant brilliant contribution. And Nancy was working in his lab, and she does the important work. And then he gets up to present the work and someone says, well, who did all the work? And he says, well, I did it myself, of course. And, you know, again, you could explain it by all these exceptions. So you could say, well, Mark was in, Mark was competing with another scientist at the time, Wally Gilbert, um, who goes on to be a founder of Biogen and um, win the Nobel Prize himself. And so there had been this competition between them. And it was really much set up as this competition between Mark and Wally. And also, you know, Nancy, as a technician, she knew that at the time, Technicians were never given credit on paper. So the initial paper was credited to Mark Patashny. Um, Mark did, I should h- rush to say that Mark did, because Jim Watson said to him, You can't take credit for this, you have to mention Nancy. Mark did call Nancy and apologize and send flowers. But again, what's so interesting is Nancy's own reaction. Um, and I think this is what we have to remember is that unconscious bias is not something that that just men do toward women or just, you know, we all do it toward ourselves. We all you know, everyone has these biases, whether they're looking at their own gender or their own race, whatever. Um, we all kind of buy into these social messages. But Nancy, in this case, says, well, you know, technicians are never included on the papers. And that is true. You know, now, mm-hmm. when people talk about that experiment, you know, I'm looking right now at a book on my bookshelf, Emperor of All Maladies, and it's, I believe it's mentioned in that book. Um, and it's mentioned as Hopkins and Potashny. So it's both of them. But at the time, there wasn't mention of technicians, whether they were male or female. So I think Nancy could explain it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when she really starts to feel like Rosalind Franklin is when is later on when she's at MIT and she has to create the animal cells that she then drops uh, the virus on to watch the cancerous tumors grow. And so she it takes a long time to create these cells, and these other postdocs are coming into her lab and just taking the cells as if they've, you know, as if there was no labor involved in making them, <laughs> as if they were just you know, out there in the ether for anyone to take. And that's what really upsets her. The early incident with Mark, she can explain away by the situation of the time, which is that technicians never got credit.
0: And of course, there was other uh, impacts as well. She was uh, wanting to teach particular classes. She was promised that she would teach particular classes. And then those classes would be given over to somebody else in addition to mm. the time to do the research that she needed. So eventually she starts talking, I guess, uh, or uh, members of the, of the faculty. At this point, she's no longer the only female faculty member at MIT. But I, I also liked your description of MIT. MIT sounded like not a terribly hospitable place for <laughs> any woman during much of her tenure at the time you're writing about. It was very much a boys club.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's that's true certainly. You know, you look at at some of the stuff that was written about um female students at MIT and it's just like, you know, it's kind of incredible, you know, just the way they're described, you know, if you want to find an attractive woman, you basically have to go to another campus in Boston and they're, you know, they're so hideous and they spoil your experiment with their nail polish and, and it's really yeah. awful. Yeah. Um but one thing I will say about MIT is that even in 1999, when, the, when these women started, or sorry, 1994, when they start doing this work that ultimately leads to the admission in 1999, a lot of the men would say things like, well, Harvard is worse. And it's true. I mean, other universities were worse in terms of hiring women. I do think MIT is a really fascinating place to look at this because really starting in the 60s and going into the 70s. MIT thought of itself as a very progressive place. You know, it was uh, black students. There was a black students union that was really reaching, you know, very active, reaching out to get more black students on campus. There was a very strong anti-Vietnam War movement there. The Union of Concerned Scientists, that organization was actually started at MIT. It came out of the anti-war movement there. So, I think MIT thought, well, we're hiring women, we're doing the right thing. And there was this assumption, even among women, that as long as we let more women, under, female undergraduates in the door, women would eventually rise up through the ranks to, the, to become faculty members. And that just wasn't happening. Um, and women, you know, when you looked at the numbers, the number of female undergraduates into the 90s was really high. But then you you watch what happens. You know, they drop off in graduate school and they really drop off at the postdoc level and they really, really drop off at junior faculty and then the number of senior faculty, the number of women there, had pretty much remained constant since the early 70s. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, MIT was a very competitive place. And one of the one of the answers, again, that, that the men in charge said in the early 90s was, well, it's just that it's a competitive place and women aren't socialized to be competitive, which is true, but it's not much of an excuse. <laughs>
0: right. Tell me about how the 16 women came together and began comparing notes and realizing that no they weren't exceptions. this was the rule
1: uh, Nancy, as I said earlier, starts she moves into a new field she goes to study zebrafish. She takes a sabbatical for a year in Germany and she works with this other woman who's leading that field and she comes back to MIT and she sets up her her zebrafish lab and the experiments are going well and she's trying to do this really risky thing where she's going to show the genes involved in the development of zebrafish which will help us understand what genes are necessary for human development right so for healthy human development and what happens when our genes go wrong and there's abnormal development so very critical experiment and she has her fish tanks and she needs more space for fish tanks and there is more room on the floor and the university is renovating the floor that she's on and so she thinks she's going to be able to get more space but in fact she can't it's it's denied her and so she goes to the head of the cancer center where she's working and she says well everybody else has more space than i do and he says, oh, don't be ridiculous. And she says, no, they do. And he says, you know, she says, yes, you know, I have less. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. goes back and forth. And finally, she says, okay. And again, she's thinking of science. She's thinking of the meritocracy here. She's thinking, okay, I'm going to show him the data. I'm going to get the, I'm going to get these numbers. And once I show him the numbers, he'll get it. He'll understand it. And I'll get my space. So late at night, she takes a tape measure, and she goes around the building, and she measures every lab and every (laughs) office, and she finds out that, as she suspected, she has less space. And not only does she have less space than everybody else, but she, as a fully tenured woman on the faculty, has less space than men without tenure. So she goes again to the head of the cancer center. He says, don't be ridiculous. He doesn't even want to look at the numbers that she's given him. Ultimately, she goes and consults a lawyer. And the lawyer says, You know, I've had some luck with working with MIT with the administration. So why don't you try that route before you decide to sue? And so she goes to the provost. She has to look up who the provost is because she's so, you know, out of touch with university politics. She goes and sees him. He connects her with the Dean of Science. They're sort of like, Why are you, you know, why is this such a fuss? Over so basically a hundred square feet. And she gets the space. But then what happens is she's been asked to teach this very important course. And the course is the first, it's going to be a required biology class, required of all undergraduates at MIT. It's the first time that biology has been a requirement. And they call on Nancy because they know that she's created an elective course some years earlier for teaching biology to non-biology majors. And she's done a really good job. She's had the highest ratings in the department. And she teaches this course with another man. She, but she's sort of mainly responsible for its development. She does all the things like securing the classroom and the textbooks. And she, they teach this class together for three years. And then suddenly the man wants to teach with another man. And so Nancy's told by the department head that she's out of this course. And she's just heartbroken. And she can't figure out why this happens. And then it turns, she hears that these two men want to start a company together. They want to take this course and produce a textbook They want to sell CD-ROMs, they want to do teaching videos, and so essentially they want to commercialize this course together, so Nancy's out in the street, essentially. Um, And she's very upset about this. She fights, she goes back to the administration, tries to fight that way. Ultimately, she loses the class just because they kind of stall her, and suddenly it's the end of the semester, and there's no time for her to, to continue teaching the course. She goes back, so she goes back to her apartment, and she's just crushed by this, And she writes a letter to the president of MIT, and she tells him about the space problems and that she's had a lower salary all these years, and she tells him about the course. But a friend of hers says, you know, I'm not really sure you should send this letter. A man says this, Um, the president doesn't know you. He might think you're not that good a scientist. So she shows it to another woman on the faculty. And it's a woman named Mary Lou Pardue, who Nancy doesn't know very well. She's another biologist. But Nancy has huge respect for her because Mary Lou was the first woman in the School of Science to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which is a very big deal. So she goes to Mary Lou and she shows her the letter and she sit, they sit over this table at lunch and Nancy watches for what she feels like is hours as Mary Lou reads the letter. And finally, Mary Lou says, I'd like to sign this letter and I think we should go see the president um, because I've long thought that there was a problem for women in this department. So that's the first thing for Nancy. And she feels like she has incredible power just having one other woman. But then she says to Mary Lou, gosh, do you think there might be others who feel this way? And they go and they look up the number. They they decide they're going to canvass the other women in the School of Science just to see if maybe they have a case. And what they discover is that there are only 15 tenured women in the School of Science. There are 197 men. So the disparity there is just huge. So they go to all these other women, and the women immediately sign on and say that they want to do something. And they go to, they decide not to go to the president, they decide to go to the dean of science and ask him if they can have a committee that will look to see whether there really are disparities between men and women. And I love this part of the story because the dean who is sort of, you know, it's now 1994, and he thinks discrimination is definitely something in the past. He doesn't think of himself as someone who does discriminate. He's then seated in a room with six of these women and they go around his conference table and they tell their stories. And it's almost like he describes it as sort of an, as an epiphany, almost like a, you know, thunderbolt. And he just realizes that, the you know, he's a guy, he's a scientist, he has his full career, he has four kids. And he's looking around this table at women who have no children who've totally sacrificed themselves for science and have been sort of frustrated every every step of the way.
0: And it is, a uh, uh, in that in, you would think, okay, maybe the story will end there, but it takes another five (laughs) years for MIT to finally admit that. So MIT eventually does admit that they had discriminated against female faculty members. How much has that changed academia since that admission? Mm -hmm. And how much are female academics still fighting these same discriminatory practices today?
1: Well, I should say quickly that MIT now is pretty much run by women. So female president, female board chair, female dean of science – at the school of engineering which has long been really male there are eight departments and five are led by women so there have been huge changes and you know now the ivy league most of the schools in the ivy league are led by women there was one at the time the women did this report so i think a lot has changed but what has not changed and what you hear you know what what you hear in reports that have been done by the national academies what i hear as i'm on the road talking about this book um is that women still feel they're suffering from the problems the MIT women described, which was people thinking you don't belong there or people thinking that women don't have the same intellectual firepower and sort of these these slights that build up over time where it's just assumed that that sort of it's the men who belong and the women who are merely tolerated.
0: Well, Kate Zernike, I appreciate your time today. The name of the book is The Exceptions. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rich.
0: Kate Zernicke is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times. Her new book is titled The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. It's published by Scribner's. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.